Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today we're reading from Genesis 22, 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, please keep them open to Genesis 22. A few months ago, as we were putting our son James to bed, we opened up his Bible to read Scripture together as we do most evenings. And the passage for that night was this one from Genesis 22. It's a passage that I've read many times before, as I'm sure many of you have as well. In fact, I'm guessing that some of you have read this passage recently, as you have begun new annual Bible reading plans. You probably have just read through Genesis 22 sometime in the past couple weeks. But that night, even though I've read this passage many times before, as I read it again, it took on a new significance for me. As I sat, holding my almost, at the time, one-year-old, the words of Genesis 22... And the command of God to his servant Abraham struck me in a way that they hadn't before. I spent days thinking about that passage, this passage, struggling to get my head and my heart around it. There is no doubt that Genesis 22 is a hard pill to swallow. I am not the first to stumble over it. Others have gone further, using this passage to question God's goodness or whether or not he is actually worthy of our worship. For some, this passage is troubling enough that even the idea of worshiping that God revealed in this passage is unconscionable. Some get past Adam and Eve's banishment in Genesis 3, 
They read about God's wrath poured out on the whole world in the flood from chapter 6, and they get here to chapter 22, and they hit a brick wall that they just can't get past. And as I read these words over my son, I wasn't there, I wasn't at that point, but I could not shake the ways that this passage challenged me and even bothered me. Maybe you feel that way too. Maybe you read these hard words from God to his servant Abraham, a command to offer his son as a sacrifice, and you struggle with them too. All the words of Scripture we know are breathed out by God for our good. So this passage needs to be read. It needs to be understood and preached for the good of the church. But if you're like me, and you have struggled with reading this passage joyfully, you will be tempted to pretend that it's not in the Bible at all. So when Bruce and I were laying out the preaching schedule and decided to set aside several weeks at the beginning of the year to jump around in the Bible before we resume our study of John's Gospel in February, I knew I wanted to preach on this text. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher from the 19th century, once said that if there is ever a verse, if there is any verse that you would like left out of the Bible, that is the verse that ought to stick to you like a blister until you really attend to its teaching. So I have not let it go. God has good hope for us in the hard words of Genesis 22, and my hope is that together we will discover them this morning. Let's pray together as we begin. Lord, as we open your word this morning, it is with a desire to hear your voice. And so we ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see you, hearts to receive you with joy. We ask, Lord, that you would do your work in us this morning, in your word and by the power of your spirit. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, Abraham's relationship with God began back in Genesis 12. At that time, he was a different man. He was called Abram. He lived in a distant land, and he, along with everyone else, was an idol-worshiping pagan. Yet, because of the mysterious and divine mercy of our God, he hears a word from the true and living God, not one of the idols that he had been worshiping. And the Lord of all creation says to him, go, pack up what you have, leave your home and your safety and your family behind, and trust me. And in the years that followed, Abram became Abraham. He endured decades of strife and stress and longing that God ultimately satisfied. He made grievous mistakes, but God continually protected him and his wife, Sarah. He settled in a strange land, and God blessed him with material wealth. And he trusted that this God, unlike those worshipped by his forefathers, would be faithful and dependable and present with him. He put his faith in God and in the covenant promises that God had made to protect him and bless him and to give his family a home and to give him descendants that would ultimately one day outnumber the stars or even the sand on the seashore. When God spoke to Abraham and told him to go, he trusted God and he went. It would take decades before Abraham and Sarah had a child, but when they finally did, when Isaac was born, it was after years and years of longing for God to keep his promises and trusting that somehow, someday, he would. It was a faith commended by God in Genesis 15, 
And the life of Abraham is a testimony to the power of God to keep his word in the face of seemingly insurmountable earthly circumstances. And now, as Abraham approaches the end of his life, there is little else he could possibly think to ask for. Every need has been met, and every time he looks at his son, he sees the glorious future that God has promised. He knows and he has seen proved that God's promises are stronger than iron and that no power in this world can stand against them in this lifetime or in ages to come. So he calls God by a unique name at the end of Genesis chapter 21, leading up to our passage this morning. He calls God the everlasting God, the unbreakable, unending God, the one who will never be conquered, who will never wither or fade, but whose glory and whose love for his people will endure forever. For Abraham and Sarah and their son Isaac, everything had fallen into place according to the plans and the promises of this everlasting God. But now, something happens that puts the promises of this everlasting God at risk. Just as as it had in the beginning of his relationship with God, a word has come to Abraham, and it's a word that he has heard before. God tells him again to go. It is the word that bookends the story of God's relationship with this man. Go, take your son to the place that I will show you, and trust me. God tells Abraham to bring Isaac to the land of Moriah, which some scholars think is the region that would later become the city of Jerusalem and the home of Israel's temple, and to offer him there, his son, as a burnt offering, a sacrifice. It's not an uncommon practice in the ancient Near East. Most religious systems of the day had absolutely no reservations about child sacrifice. Abraham himself may well have come from a culture that practiced these sorts of rituals. But this would have come as a shock to him. It is without question the most heartbreaking word that Abraham might have heard from God. First, because God has dealt kindly with Abraham throughout their relationship. So this is a dramatic change. It represents a a, a dramatic change. Uh, changing his understanding of his relationship with God, but second, because of his concern for his son. We see that in the threefold repetition of the phrase, your son, your only son, in this chapter. God knows how deeply Abraham loves Isaac. He says so himself. There is nothing more dear to him. And on top of that, Isaac represents everything that God had promised for Abraham's future and for the blessing of the whole world. He and Sarah had waited 25 years for God to overcome their infertility, so long, in fact, that by the time that Isaac was born, Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. His birth was a miracle. God wanted that much, at least, to be obvious. He is the child who embodies, in his existence, he embodies God's faithfulness to his covenant. That point is further underscored by the fact that God had said specifically that Isaac will be the one through whom God will bring Abraham's abundant lineage into the world. Isaac will be the one to inherit the promise of God's blessing for the whole world. Writing on this passage, John Calvin notes that in the person of this son and in the command to put him to death, the whole salvation of the world seemed to be extinguished and to perish. And he was to be offered as a burnt offering. 
consumed by flames until there was nothing left, as if he had never existed. As if the decades that Abraham had walked with God had led nowhere. So God's command here represents not only the loss of what Abraham loves most, but also the loss of God's promises for his future and the future of the world. It is a devastating word. We might expect Abraham to protest, as he had when God resolved to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah back in Genesis 18, when Abraham tries to talk God out of what he's about to do. But when morning comes, Abraham rises early to go in obedience to the command of God. The narrative slows down. The writer tells us that Abraham rose early, he chopped the firewood, he saddles his donkey, and he gathers two servants and Isaac. Now, there's no reason for the narrator to tell us that Abraham chopped firewood except to let us feel something of the pain and the dread that Abraham is feeling as he prepares for this awful journey. And then we read, it takes three days for him to get there to the place that God will show him. So he had three days to think about what lay ahead. This will not be a spontaneous act of obedience with little thought involved. Instead, he has three days to walk straight toward it, seeing it in the distance as we read in verse 4. But there are signs in this passage that hope is not lost for Abraham and for Isaac. Abraham has obeyed God as he had back in chapter 12 when God first told him to go, but now something is different. Back in chapter 12, he knew nothing of God. He had not seen him prove his love or his power. But now, at the end of his life, he knows from experience that God is is one not merely to be obeyed, but to be truly and deeply trusted. We see that first in verse 5. After he knows that they're getting close, Abraham tells the servants who are traveling with them to stay behind. He says to them, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Some translations of this verse verse make clear what can be easy to miss, I think, in the English Standard Version that I'm reading from this morning. If you're reading the NIV or the New King James or the New American Standard or even the International Standard Version, you would read these words, we will go to worship and then we will return to you. The word for return in this passage, in the original Hebrew of this passage, is a first-person plural. We will return. Abraham is not planning on coming back alone. At this point, he does not know exactly what will happen, but he has hope that this day will not end in heartbreak. Secondly, as they're on their way up the mountain, Isaac asks his father a question that he must have been wondering for the entirety of their silent three-day journey. We don't know exactly how old Isaac is, but we know that he's old enough to understand that something is missing. And so he asks in verse 7, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? He doesn't know exactly what they're doing. Evidently, Abraham has not shared the details of their itinerary with Isaac, but he does know that sacrifices require something to be sacrificed. And so he asks his father about it. And Abraham's reply is significant in verse 8. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. His answer to Isaac is not a deflection, but it's also not really a direct answer to Isaac's question. 
He puts the ball in God's court because he trusts in two things. God had promised that Isaac would be the one to inherit the covenant, the one through whom God would bring about his blessing for the world. And secondly, he knows that this is a situation that only God could deal with. Abraham could not, by any scheme of his design or any argument that he could muster, solve the problem in front of him at this moment. And so he says in faith, God will provide. God will answer this problem. God will solve the situation we're in. And this, I think, is right where God wants him to be. To realize that he is trapped between two immovable objects and that his only hope is for God to do what only God can do. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham was a man of great faith and that he considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. He trusts that God will be able to do what no one else could. So he knows that even now, on the darkest day of his entire life, he has a reason to hope and to trust in God. So they keep climbing the hill until they reach the place where the sacrifice will be made. And again, the narrative slows down. Abraham builds an altar. He binds Isaac and places him on top of it. Ten times in this passage, the word son occurs. Ten reminders that this child is his beloved, the one that he prayed for, the one he waited for, the one that he joyfully received as a miracle in his old age. Ten reminders that culminate in verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I think about what it would be like to read this passage for the first time. This verse would stop you in your tracks. It's the climax of the story, the most critical and consequential choice that Abraham has ever made. And reading it, we think, surely there must have been some mistake, some misunderstanding for him to be in this situation. But before he moves another muscle, a heavenly voice rings out, this time with urgency, Abraham, Abraham. And for the third time in this chapter, Abraham replies, here I am. He's listening. And the voice from heaven says to him, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. At the very last second, God stops his servant from doing this horrible and tragic thing. And he says that he knows his faith is genuine because Abraham's actions have confirmed it. Reading this passage, people have often wondered, didn't God already know what Abraham would do? Did he really need this awful display to know that Abraham and his faith were genuine? The Bible certainly does demonstrate that God knows what people will do before they do it, and that he even knows the intentions of their hearts, the inward motives that are underneath their actions. It's part of what makes him God. There's abundant biblical precedent that we can turn to to see that. It distinguishes the God of the Bible from lifeless idols that people often worship. And it's one of the ways that Jesus himself proved his divinity to his disciples when he told them about the betrayal of Judas ahead of time, saying to them, I'm telling you this now so that when it comes to pass, you may know that I am. God knows the hearts of 
all people. So he knows Abraham's faith. So why does this passage say, now I know that you fear God, if he already knew what Abraham would do? James, in his New Testament epistle, writes about this moment from Genesis 22, about Abraham when he offered up his son Isaac, and that that action completed his faith. God has given Abraham a chance to act on his faith, to confirm it, or in James's words, to complete it. God hasn't learned something he didn't know before. He is not surprised by Abraham's obedience, but something in Abraham has changed, and God sees it. One scholar writing on this question, the question about this this, uh, paradox, says that God does not experience the quality of Abraham's faith until it is played out on the stage of history. In hearing the command and in making the three-day journey and in building the altar, Abraham has trusted God with what he loves most dearly hoping with all, his heart, with all of his heart that God would intercede. It was a faith that caused him to put one foot in front of the other on his way there, a faith that brought him to the top of the mountain, and a faith that God would provide even as he took the knife in his hand. And God did. Abraham looked, we read in verse 13, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Isaac is spared because God provided. So Abraham commemorates the occasion, naming that place the Lord will provide. And afterward, in the last recorded words that God spoke to Abraham during his lifetime, God reaffirms his covenant promises to his servant in the paragraph that follows the passage we're reading this morning. Everything that seemed in peril is safe. The hope of God's blessing and provision are secure. The assurance that Isaac will likewise become the father of a great multitude in Abraham's lineage is confirmed. The story ends happily, to say the least, because the promise for the hope of all of humanity is intact. But why why put Abraham and Isaac through such an ordeal? Why risk the scornful criticism that this passage brings about from those who see in it only a capricious God who demands a barbaric and terrible thing from his only faithful servant? Why instruct Abraham to carry out an act that is so despicable and so heinous and so wicked that is specifically prohibited in God's law, even if the plan was to stop him at the last second? Even if we accept that it is God's prerogative to command whatever he wills, If he he had commanded Abraham to do this, he is absolutely within his rights to do that. We may still wrestle with why he would. It's the question we might find ourselves asking when something that we deeply treasure is in peril or even lost. When the hopes that we had for a future we wanted are shattered and replaced by a life we never wanted or that we even dreaded. Perhaps you already know that feeling. The closest I've ever been was a little over a year ago when James, who I mentioned earlier, was born. It wasn't like anything that I expected. But a few minutes after he was born, in the joy that we were feeling to have seen our son for the first time, someone in the room noticed something strange about the way that he was breathing. And suddenly, instantly, the room was full of people. They took him out of Jessica's arms And a minute later, they told us that he needed to be taken upstairs to the intensive care unit. I went with him, leaving Jessica behind. 
And we got up there and teams were coming and doing things that I didn't understand. All I knew was that something was wrong and I had no clue how serious it was. I tried to stay out of the way while these professionals did what they were there to do and I prayed. I prayed for Jessica who was alone downstairs, completely unaware of what was happening. I prayed for James, who was hooked up by this point to about 100 machines and sensors. And as I prayed, there was a part of my brain, not an insignificant part of my brain, that was frustrated that James and Jessica should have to endure this. And I was afraid. Because nobody at that point was certain yet what was happening. I wanted to know why things had been allowed to go this way. By the end of the day, we knew that James was safe. But until we knew that, we were afraid pleading with God that he would show our family mercy. It was a formative moment in my life, as the most difficult moments always are. Looking back on it now, I cannot say that I was never frustrated with God during what was the most stressful and fearful moment of my life. But in love, God drove me to the point that all I could do was pray, acknowledging that I was utterly helpless to solve the problem in front of me. In situations like that one, God gives us opportunities to truly act on our faith in ways that are otherwise only theoretical. Another example comes to mind from the life of Charles Spurgeon, who I, I know that I've mentioned a lot lately, uh, but don't worry, I'm almost finished with the book about him that I got for Christmas. <laughs> when Charles Spurgeon was in his 50s, he was often in poor health. And at that time, one of his two sons discerned that the Lord was calling him to move to the other side of the globe to continue his ministry work in Australia. Spurgeon knew. He understood the situation that they were in as a family. And as his son prepared to leave for Australia, and on the, uh, on the day that he, that he left, Spurgeon knew that this was probably the last time that he would ever see his son on this earth. And he was deeply heartbroken by that. He felt like Abraham called by God to give up his son in obedience to the Lord's command. He wrote of wrestling with God over the situation, but in the end, he resigned to trust God's sovereign plans and the unbreakable love of God for Spurgeon and his family. In crisis and in heartbreak, we have the chance to put one foot in front of the other in faithful and trusting obedience that God will provide. Living out the words of Proverbs, Proverbs 3, to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. It is a hard word, but a good one, that God ordains hard things for our good and his glory. This scene with Abraham and Isaac was certainly a hard thing for them to endure. Were it up to them, they would certainly have chosen not to face such a painful moment in their lives, just as any of us would rather avoid the most difficult days of our own lives when the things that we love most are damaged or lost. But God called them to it. He commanded them to obey it and ordained that they would discover his glory and his provision in the process. In those moments... The ones that we often pray that God would spare us from facing, we have the chance to see with greater clarity and know with greater certainty what would otherwise be mere theory. When the Apostle Paul 
had been serving God for around 20 years, he was afflicted by something that he called a thorn in the flesh. Whether it was a physical pain or some sort of mental anguish or the persistent threat of violent opposition to the gospel, we don't know. What we do know is that it caused Paul great suffering, and he prayed over and over that God would remove it. He wanted God to spare him from this suffering, to deliver him from this affliction so that he could get on with the work of planting churches and preaching the gospel. But that day of relief did not come during Paul's lifetime. Instead, the pain persisted, and with it, the voice of God speaking to him and telling him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God willed that Paul would suffer. There is no other word for it. So that in the place of comfort in this life, he would know the eternally satisfying source of abundant life. He ordained a painful day for Abraham so that in his life, God's merciful provision might be magnified and demonstrated in a way that had only up to that point been hoped for. And he ordains painful days in your life too, but never carelessly. He aims to reveal that he is the God who provides. And along the way, here in Genesis 22, he also displays how he will save servants like Abraham and Isaac and all who call on him in faith. Abraham, as we've seen already, had been living a life of sinful rebellion against God on the day that he was called into relationship with the creator of the universe. Before a holy God, he stood guilty and deserving of wrath. Ultimately, Abraham deserved death from God's hand, not a relationship and blessing. Instead, though, he was welcomed by God, given a promise, and brought into a covenant relationship. Abraham is standing between two immovable objects, God's justice against all sin and rebellion, and his mercy toward those who turn to him in faith. And this passage shows us how God will remain just while showing the steadfast, his steadfast love and mercy to Abraham. Because the cornerstone of God's plan of salvation is substitution. Leviticus 8 describes how when an animal was brought to the temple for a burnt offering, like the one commanded here in Genesis 22, people would lay their hands on it, symbolizing the way that their condemnation was transferred from one to the other, from the, the worshiper onto the animal, so that they could live before a holy God. They made these offerings daily. Their guilt before God was a constant and enormous problem, but atonement would come through substitution. Abraham stood guilty before God, and that guilt demanded the ultimate price. His life and the future that he hoped for, represented by his son Isaac. But instead of demanding that price, God provided a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket who would take Isaac's place. It's a theme that God would develop throughout the Old Testament in, its, in, in anticipation of its ultimate fulfillment. Substitution is the way that God remains holy, showing love and covenant faithful, faithfulness to his rebellious people. And it is the mission of his son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill the hope of Genesis 22 by becoming the substitute. He saw the hill of his own suffering from far off, and he walked toward it daily. 
He had come according to the will of his father, knowing where the path ahead of him would lead. And on the day, on the day that God's only son, whom he loved, climbed that same hill carrying wood on his back, he became the substitute for all who called him Lord, taking on himself the guilt and the condemnation of his people. This is why when John the Baptist first saw Jesus, he declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, because he knew it was for this reason that Jesus had come. And it's why Jesus himself later on said that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus knew what it meant that God had given his Son. He remembered Genesis 22 and what Abraham had come to understand that day, that God will provide. And now, in Christ, God has provided for the deepest need of his people. Christ is the substitute promised by God for the once and forever atonement of all those who trust in him, the satisfaction of God's justice and the revelation of his love. And Genesis 22 helps us grasp that this was never plan B. Genesis 22 is in the Bible to set the stage for the death of God's one and only Son. Knowing that a day would come when God would give his own Son as a substitutionary sacrifice, we can understand his intentions in this passage. He was showing Abraham and us that he provides. His command demanded that Abraham respond that, that Abraham re, uh, respond to the most important question that he would ever answer. Do you trust me? It's the most important question that any of us will ever answer. And it will never be harder than when the things we love most are threatened or even lost. But on the hardest day of his life, Abraham saw the hope of God's rescue more clearly, clearly than he ever had before. It became more than theory. And as we set our lives on the Son of God, as we look to him, the one given for us, we will see that the gospel and the love of God for us are more than theory. The words of this passage are hard. There's no getting around that. Because we see that God sometimes demands and ordains that people lose things that they love. But the good hope in these hard words is that God provides a better treasure and a better hope, an abiding and eternal one, one for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when the day comes that God's sovereign will does not align with our own, when our dreams are crushed, our plans thwarted, and our hopes dashed, we can still sing to our God who has provided. Even when our earthly treasure is snatched away, we will treasure Christ, the Son who was given to us and for us as an everlasting joy so that uh, the one who's planned for all time to win our salvation and to show and give his greatest love so that we could become people of God with joy everlasting. Would you pray with me this morning? God, this morning, we ask that you would let the hopes of this passage take root in our hearts, the hearts of your people. Write on our hearts a joy that flows from knowing your eternal provision, not merely from earthly comfort. By your Spirit, draw us near to yourself, 
and let us behold your love and your mercy in the person and work of your Son, so that when faced with earthly heartbreak, we will stand and say that we trust you and our hope is in you alone. Do your work in us, Lord, we ask in the name of Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.